Welcome back to P4 What For, Phase 4 Podcast. I'm your host, Giselle Chung. Last week, we had plasma physicist Derek Thompson on. Derek talked about why Phase 4's RF thruster is propellant agnostic, or why it can use many different types of fuels. Today, we're joined by VP of Advanced Development, Jason Wallace, to add more context and help us understand why alternative propellants matter. Welcome, Jason. Thanks. It's good to be back. (laughs) (laughs) Jason, you've been a guest on this podcast before, but you you came on as VP of Operations, and now you've shifted into this new role as VP of Advanced Development. So first of all, congratulations. Thank you. Tell our listeners more about what this new role means. What's changing for you? Sure. So the primary focus for me as a VP of Advanced Development is is looking at the mission requirements and the needs of the United States government. It's a unique customer with unique requirements that are sometimes outside of uh, our commercial customers. They have capabilities that are needed for things as as unique as deep space missions, interplanetary missions, if you're talking about NASA and civil science, all the way to you know, the, the defense and the intelligence community. So they have very unique mission sets that require capabilities and advanced concepts that we will need to do significant non-recurring engineering development and figure out ways to adapt our technologies to their to their missions. Of course, it's important to have an understanding of what our commercial products are, and we don't want to stray too far from that. So that's why it really requires unique focus, bridging that gap between the commercial customers and the U.S. government. And you're, you're sort of uniquely suited for this because you've had experience in the U.S. Government. Right. Yeah, that certainly helps. Um, so yeah, I used to be uh, an active duty Air Force officer, and I, I worked on the space side of, of the Air Force primarily in launch vehicles, but had a lot of experience on the satellite and what we call space vehicle side that helps me understand a little bit more about the mission sets that the Air Force and the Department of Defense are looking for, as well as I'm actually a current Air Force Reserve officer, so I have some understanding of where the Air Force is going in terms of space capabilities that are needed for national security purposes. So it, it helps going through all those contracts, understanding how you know the U.S. government thinks and functions certainly is a benefit. You've bought rockets. Yes. So now you can easily put yourself in the shoes of someone who will be buying in space rockets. That's a good way of putting it. Exactly. Cool. So as someone who works so closely with Phase 4's customers, from their perspective, why do you think alternative propellants, or why do you think propellant agnosticism matters to them? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. So there's, I think, two ways of looking at it. From one perspective, when you're designing a mission, there are certain physical characteristics of different propellants that uh, will be beneficial to your mission. So for example, having a propellant that can be stored as a solid or as a liquid doesn't require a tank, a very strong reinforced tank that holds a pressurized gas. So that that reduces the mass on the spacecraft. It reduces the complexity on the uh, propellant management system. And it also provides certain capabilities like you could store it already fueled mm. rather than doing fueling operations at the launch site because Certain government entities like the Department of Transportation don't particularly like having 
companies transport highly pressurized containers of xenon gas on the roadways that if they're not they haven't gone through all the proper regulatory uh, approvals and everything like that so there's other aspects like some of the propellants that we've looked at may also be denser so you're talking about smaller volumes of your spacecraft will be used for that propellant so you know those are benefits to the mission so you'd have more volume available for sensors you know cameras and communications equipment that sort of thing and then by saving mass you're also saving you know your ability to launch so you know you only have a certain amount of mass that you can get to orbit on a rocket so the more that you can save on that the more you can you know put other payloads on board or you know just get more performance out of your launch vehicle and get to better orbits so that's from the mission design side, you know, what the benefits are to the spacecraft as you're designing the mission. Those propellants can can provide benefits to that. I think on the other side, there's the economics of it. Certain propellants, the, the normal ones that electropropulsion systems use today, xenon and krypton are rare gases. They're noble gases. They're not very prevalent on Earth and in Earth's atmosphere, so they tend to be more expensive, harder to source. But if you start looking at simpler things like water and iodine, these kind of propellants are more prevalent. I mean, obviously water is plentiful on Earth. So you're talking about essentially negligible cost for for water if you were to use that as a propellant. And so you don't have those supply issues. You don't have the, that cost issue that might come into play if you're trying to launch a satellite with lots of xenon or you know lots of satellites you know during a constellation of hundreds or thousands of satellites you know xenon cost of xenon and krypton could get you know just astronomical give me a, a sense of some specific what does that look like if you have a spacecraft that has 20 kilograms of xenon on board and you have a thousand of those spacecraft yeah then the number starts to get pretty high i mean you're you're multiplying that you know over the propellant on board a single spacecraft, you know, 20 kilograms, $4,000 per kilogram. It's $80,000 per satellite. Mm -hmm. If your satellites, even if you're trying to do production at scale and reduce the cost of that satellite down to $500,000, you're spending at least, you know, 15 to 20% of that cost on consumable propellant. That doesn't sound all that bad, but then when you start looking at the entire constellation cost, if you're trying to close the business case for an entire constellation, if you're spending you know, $500,000 for a satellite over a thousand satellites, yeah. um, you know, you're talking $500 million for the hardware and then $80 million for just the propellant itself. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, that's, it's a lot of money just for the repellent itself. And then when you start thinking about how competition for that same resource might bike the price, if you look at some of the historical pricing, there's been a 5x price increase in the last decade. So if you take that into account, now you're talking about, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars just going to propellant itself. So it's hard for commercial customers or even the government to spend almost as much or in the same ballpark as their spacecraft hardware yeah. on propellant. I mean, it sounds crazy, especially when you start looking at alternatives and there's alternatives like what phase four is 
promising to provide that are out there that would just completely strike out that cost from you know, their P&L. Walk me through this. Say if you buy at a, at a point in time where you're ahead of all the other mega constellations or everyone else who's, who's building these large distributed architectures. So you get you get in on the ground floor of, of the Xenon factory or the Xenon plant, and you're getting this base price of $4,000 per kilogram. Right. What if you're the last one? You know, the, the rare gas market or the noble gas market is, there's only a few industries that are, that require it. And so it tends not to have a tremendous amount of like sudden demand. So I don't even know if you can really look to the, you know, historical pricing for a clear view of like what's, you know, the, the true catastrophe that could happen if, you know, a certain, mega constellation were to buy up everything. But if you look back at the pricing, there are circumstances where demand has outstripped supply by maybe about 5%. In just a single year, that can cause like a five times increase in price. So, you know, that's just one scenario that didn't really, it wasn't specific to one uh, one particular customer buying out the entire supply. But if that were to happen, there's a lot of challenges for you know the next in line to try to source that xenon. There's only a certain number of places within the world that can produce purified xenon for electropropulsion. So there's limited sources, limited availability. I think it could probably be pretty certain that you're going to see very large spikes in price in that scenario that you just presented. I mean, probably on, on the order of 10x the price if uh, if a situation like that were to happen. If I had to throw out a guess on what, what would happen in that scenario. Crazy. Have you had customers who have come to you and said, we want water or we want some other iodine, some other propellant? You can already tell um, based on requests that we've had from commercial customers as well as, you know, speaking more from, from my side of the business development effort on the government side, they're all interested in having what we call alternative propellants or, or non-noble gas propellants because especially on the commercial side, they see the writing on the wall that if everyone out there has to have electric propulsion on on board their spacecraft that make up their large constellations, they're all going to be competing for a limited resource. It's going to be expensive to, to procure the, the commodity, the gas that's required, or they're going to have to invest in, you know, new sources or infrastructure to produce that, that noble gas themselves. So they're all looking for, you know, the silver bullet that will, you know, solve that sourcing issue. And I think we get requests you know, almost on a monthly basis from some new customer or from existing customers who are interested in what we can do with other propellants besides Xenon and Krypton. And then on the the government side, I mentioned before about the spacecraft and, and mission design benefits of alternative propellants. They're always interested in these sort of things, you know, whatever they can get better performance out of their propulsion system or even more capability or more payloads on their on their satellites or on their spacecraft that's always something that they're interested in on the side of nasa in particular they're really looking for some kind of game-changing capability that uh, xenon and krypton can't provide it's 
you know, you're looking for something that has more performance per you know unit volume, and that's something that they're going to have to look towards more unique or more innovative propellants, you know, stuff that can store very densely. They basically want a space DeLorean. Yeah. <laughs> Just trying to see what can we throw at this thruster and actually get some something. Some you know, there. Yeah. yeah, cool. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Jason. I think that's actually all the time that we have for today. Really appreciate you joining us. Absolutely. Again, in this small conference room. <laughs> yeah. Let us know if you have more questions for Jason. We're on Twitter at Phase4Plasma.